Well, you know, sometimes I like to start the message with something fun to do. And my message today is called Basically Two Kinds of People. So I'm gonna give you a little test to see which kind of person you are in a few different categories, okay? So I'm gonna show you something on the screen and I want you, I'm gonna ask you to tell me which person you are. Let's put the first one up there. There are basically two kinds of people. How many of you are option A? One alarm is all I need. Good for you. How many of you are option B, like me? You've got multiples set. Yeah, you know who you are. Let's show the next one. Who's option A? I want my blinds neat and tidy. Who's option B? I don't care as long as it blocks most of the sun. Anybody? Okay, a few honest people out there. Next one. How many of you are OCD chocolate eaters? How many of you don't care as long as it gets in your mouth? All right, see the next one. Who just leaves those notifications up there? Anybody? Like, whatever, I don't care. Who has to have them cleared? (laughs) That's a lot of people. I didn't know until this last week that we had a problem in our house. One of our children has become a tab breaker. I know. I never saw it coming. Why? Is there a reason to break the tab off? I don't understand it. I'm obviously option A. Let's do the next one. Okay, this is important. Because a lot of you are not aware that there's a better way Okay, how many of you are option A? Put the cereal in, then put the milk in. How many of you have figured out the truth? Milk first, (laughs) then you pour in the cereal gradually so that you always have fresh, crunchy, non-soggy cereal. I guarantee you there will be people that leave this service and try this tomorrow and go, I'm never going back. (laughs) What's the next one? All right, go ahead, nerds. Who's option A? I'm gonna finish that Sudoku puzzle. God bless you. I have, this is true, never completed one Sudoku puzzle in my life. How many of you are option B? Yeah, all right, you are my people. One or two more. Oh, this is the most important one. Think carefully how you answer this. Your fate and eternity may depend on. (laughs) Who is option A? Anybody? Come on, admit it. Your option. Who is I don't care? So it just ends up however it ends up on there. Anybody? Okay. And then how many of you do it the right way? Thank you. Thank you. And you also squeeze the toothpaste from the bottom of the tube, right? I hope you do. All right, that was fun. My message today is called basically two kinds of people. We're actually going to get introduced to several different groups of people in our passage today, but in the end, we're gonna find that there's basically two different kinds of people. And which kind of person you are matters a whole lot. And we're gonna learn a lot along the way as well. Before we get there, let's pray and ask God to bless our time in his word today. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your word. Pass down to us so that we can learn from it today. It is just as relevant today as it was a couple thousand years ago. Uh, This passage in particular that we're studying from Acts, Lord, is is so meaningful, but it's packed with some 
rich information that we're gonna dig into, and I really mean dig into today. So God, I pray that you would bless it. Help us to learn something from it. More importantly, help us to apply something from it to our lives and maybe better understand you in the process. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Now, we just had a break from our series in Acts, a one-week break, but it was still a break. And so I feel like I need to give you a little bit of a refresher to make sure we're caught up on what's happening with our buddy Saul. So in Acts chapter 13, at the very beginning, we were introduced to this leadership team in the church of Antioch of Syria, and they are led by the Holy Spirit to send out Saul and Barnabas for missionary work, and so they do. And Saul and Barnabas then set sail for an island called Cyprus. They take with them this guy named John Mark as an assistant. We're gonna put a map up on the screen so you can kind of track with us. I just want you to load up on some geography for a minute here so you understand the context of where we're going. So they start in Antioch of Syria, They make their way to the island of Cyprus. They land in Salamis and they work from Salamis all the way down to Paphos. And then from Paphos, what we're gonna see today is that they're gonna head across the waters, across the Mediterranean Sea there to Perga and eventually up to Antioch of Pisidia. So I'm not gonna get too far ahead of myself, but that's sort of the geography of what's happening. You can also see Jerusalem down there at the bottom. So you kind of have the whole context of what we're going to be talking about today. On that last village in Paphos, Saul and Barnabas and John Mark meet this Jewish sorcerer named Elymas who opposes dramatically the gospel about Jesus and tries to keep other people from believing it. They also meet this guy named Sergius Paulus who's a governor, he's a Roman, a Gentile. And Elymas, the Jew, rejects the message about Jesus. Sergius Paulus, the governor, accepts the message about Jesus. And Luke tells us at that point that something changes with Saul. And I don't know if you've noticed, but I've been very careful throughout this whole act series to always refer to him as Saul, unless I'm specifically talking about the two names that he has, because that's what he was called. He was Saul of Tarsus. And Saul, the Jewish Saul, named after King Saul, is is the name that he would have gone by and been known by. But Luke tells us here in Acts 13 that it was in Paphos that that we evidently see some shift to where he starts being called Paul. Because Luke says, by the way, he was also known as Paul, which means this is probably, and then from this point on in Acts, he's always called Paul. So there's some shift that happens here. And I think it's probably related to this encounter with Elymas and Sergius and maybe some of the other people on Cyprus that they encountered, where they see the rejection of the Jewish people and the acceptance of the Gentile people. And Saul starts to realize, I think my ministry from here on out is going to be primarily focused on the Gentiles. Doesn't exactly know what that's going to look like yet, which we'll see today but we start to see a shift and then that shift fully happens where we're headed today in our text. But I do wanna level set on some expectations for our message today because sermons are always a blend of preaching, teaching, and entertainment. And all three of those are good things. So preaching has to do with proclaiming the word of God in a way that makes a difference in your life. It's about the application and convincing you to think differently or do differently based on God's word. Teaching has generally more to do with information passing, it's knowledge. And you need that knowledge to be convinced that you need to change your life. And so there's a little nuance to the preaching and the teaching and then entertainment is what keeps you hooked along the way, makes you interested in the topic to begin with. You know, something like the illustration that we just did with the two different kinds of people and then other analogies and stories and things along the way that that they're entertaining because they engage your mind, but that's but not in a shallow way, in a way that hopefully makes you engage even better with the knowledge and with the application. So those are kind of the nuances to, to sermons. And different sermons, different weeks will have different blends of those three. 
And today, I just want to let you know that this is going to be very much a teaching sermon. It's going to, it's going to have some information in it. And I hopefully, hopefully it'll be helpful to you. But it's lighter on the application and heavier on the information because there are two theological questions that are raised by our text today. And sometimes our temptation as preachers when we come to those as we're working through a book of the Bible is to say, yeah, I'm not going to touch on that. I'm just going to hit on some main point of application that I want to make. And we'll leave that for a theology class for anybody that wants to go to seminary. And this week I just felt like we need to talk about these two things. Um, for one reason, I think is that sometimes people get this idea that God is different in the Old Testament than in the New. And so I think that's something we can address today and talk about the differences between the Old and New Testament and the similarities and what that looks like. And then there's another little question that will come up too that's just kind of a minor point, but I do think we need to address it um, for all of us who are here. And it was very interesting in the early service and the conversations afterwards. So I trust that this will hopefully be interesting to you as well. I'll go ahead and tell you what the two questions are. The first question is, did people in the Old Testament get saved differently than people in the New Testament? So in the Old Testament, God appears to have this system of works-based salvation, where you have to do the sacrifices, and you have to do the festivals, and you have to follow the law of Moses, you have to do all these things. And then there's this shift that happens in the New Testament, where all of a sudden now God is into a faith-by-grace salvation. And instead of it being works-based, now it's faith-based. And it's like God sort of tried things a certain way. And, and a lot of people have this idea that the God of the Old Testament is a very judgmental sort of condemnation God. And then in the New Testament, he's like, that's not working. So we're going to try honey instead of vinegar. And now we're going to do the grace faith thing. And it's going to be all love and mercy. And so it's almost like it's two different gods. And even if you've never thought about this a lot intentionally, I do think that a lot of Christians at some point in their faith journey kind of struggle with, these are two very different parts of the Bible. And it almost seems like God is very different in those parts of the Bible. And it also seems like God went from a works-based salvation to a faith-based salvation. What's up with that? Why wouldn't he be consistent the whole way through? And so we are going to talk about that quite extensively today. And it's going to be very much a teaching-oriented message, which for some of you may be very interesting. For others of you, you're along for the ride. And by the way, I was told by our Kid Connection staff and the people that are working the carnival today that they would prefer I go long. So... Last year, evidently, I went short on Carnival Day, and that messed them up because they were still setting up and people were rushing out there to get all the food and get everything ready. And so they told me yesterday, they actually had a meeting about this, and they said, Adam, you have to go long in your message. So don't blame me, okay? <laughs> all right, all that introduction. Now I have to figure out where I'm at. Acts 13, verse 13 says this, Paul and his companions then left Paphos. We saw that at the end of the island of Cyprus for a, by ship for Pamphylia, landing at the port town of Perga. There, John Mark left them and returned to Jerusalem. Now, this is not for today, but this departure of John Mark to Jerusalem was not a happy departure. And we'll learn more about that in a couple of chapters. We're actually going to talk about this on June 11th, so you can come back for that. It is a fascinating story. In fact, I had some Interesting thoughts about this story as I was studying this week for that message, June 11th. So come, come back then and you'll learn all about John Mark's departure and, and how that worked out and turned out. It, it's even a little different than I expected, actually. But all we need to know today is that in the words of Timon, our trio is down to two. And now it is just Saul or Paul now and Barnabas who are moving on to Antioch of Pisidia. So verse 14 says, Paul and Barnabas traveled inland to Antioch of Pisidia. On the Sabbath, they went to the synagogue for the services. 
This is another one of those Antiochs. There are lots of Antiochs in the ancient world. The biggest one was Antioch of Syria. That was the Rome of the East. This is Antioch of Pisidia. There were other Antiochs. They were all named for leaders that were um, named, can you guess? Antioch, very good. Or Antiochus, technically. I think some of you even got the right name there. So if you're a leader, if you're in some position of prominence or have a lot of money, you get to name stuff after you. Not much has changed in that regard. And so you've got a lot of these places named Antioch. This just happens to be Antioch of Pisidia. And Paul and Barnabas show up, and as usual, they go to the synagogue. They're going to talk with the Jewish people there. Here's what happens. After the usual readings from the book of Moses and the prophets, those in charge of the service sent them this message. Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, come and give it. Paul and Barnabas look like good Jewish guys. In fact, they probably were introduced when they showed up to synagogue that day. In fact, it's very possible that the leaders of the synagogue were like, oh, Saul of Tarsus, whoa, you know, because he's kind of a big deal. And so the respectful, honoring thing to do is to say, hey, would you like to speak in our service? For the synagogue leaders, it's an honor to have guest people come and speak uh, if they're, if they're well-known you know, Jewish uh, leaders, especially from Jerusalem. I mean, that's a big deal for them. And so they would love for them to share. It's kind of a, a feather in their cap. And it's just a normal thing for them to do. Now, one time I was traveling halfway around the world to a, a country in Asia, and it took me multiple flights to get there. I think it was over 20 hours of, of travel before I finally got there. I don't sleep well on planes. So I was exhausted, just dead tired. I could not wait to sleep. And I had a whole big team with me too, so that didn't help. Anyway, we get to the airport. They load us up into vans, and, and they take us to where I think is going to be where we're going to be staying to sleep. And they actually took us to a church service. There were over 100 people there in this church service that had not started yet. We walked in. Everybody's looking at us. And I said, okay, this is cool. You took us to a church service. Fine, we'll make it through this, and then we'll go take a nap, you know? And I said, so, you know, what are you doing today? Who's, who's speaking? What's going on? They said, well, you are. So I was the one that was supposed to suddenly be speaking in the church service, and I like a little more preparation than that. Paul did not need that, though, because Paul has been given the same message for week after week in these synagogues, and so he's able to just get up right away and share this thing. He had probably had it well memorized and refined. Here's what happened. Verse 16, he says, uh, well, Paul stood up. He lifted his hand to quiet them, and then he says this. Men of Israel and you God-fearing Gentiles, listen to me. Now, I just think it's really cool that Paul would give a shout-out to the God-fearing Gentiles in the room. If he hadn't done that, I would assume his audience is entirely Jewish, but they're not. Some of these have converted to Judaism, and they've started to worship the God of Israel. Reminds us of Cornelius from a few weeks ago, who was a Gentile but was worshiping the God of Israel. It makes you think of the Ethiopian as well, who was worshiping the God of Israel, even though he was not by birth a Jew. So we know at this point that there are three groups of people in this synagogue, at least right now. There are Jews who follow God but haven't learned about Jesus yet. There are Gentiles who follow God but haven't heard about Jesus yet. And then there are Jews who follow Jesus, and that's Paul and Barnabas at this point. And the next thing that happens is a full accounting of this sermon that Paul gives in the synagogue. And it's, it's long, and we're not going to put it all up on the screen. So I'm going to encourage you to bust out your Bibles and go to Acts 13 and read along with me for this part. And if you don't have a Bible handy, go to efree.org Bible, and you will find this passage laid out for you there. In fact, that's available every week. Every week, the main passage is at efree.org slash Bible, along with a bunch of announcements and things like that. So you're welcome to use that if that's helpful. Acts chapter 13, verse 17. We're going to read through this whole sermon together and then talk about it a little bit on the way. The God of this nation of Israel chose our ancestors 
and made them multiply and grow strong during their stay in Egypt. Then with a powerful arm, he led them out of their slavery. He put up with them for 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. Then he destroyed seven nations in Canaan and gave their land to Israel as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. After that, God gave them judges to rule until the time of Samuel the prophet. Then the people begged for a king, and God gave them Saul, son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin who reigned for 40 years. But God removed Saul and replaced him with David. A man about whom God said, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. And it is one of King David's descendants, Jesus, who is God's promised savior of Israel. Before he came, John the Baptist preached that all the people of Israel needed to repent of their sins and turn to God and be baptized. As John was finishing his ministry, he asked, do you think I am the Messiah? No, I am not. But he is coming soon. And I'm not even worthy to be his slave and untie the sandals on his feet. Brothers, you sons of Abraham and also you God-fearing Gentiles, this message of salvation has been sent to us. And I just love again that he includes the Gentiles in there. You God-fearing Gentiles, you're in this too. This message is primarily for the Jewish people. But by the way, this message is ultimately for everyone. Paul already readily knows this. Verse 27, the people in Jerusalem... And their leaders did not recognize Jesus as the one the prophets had spoken about. Instead, they condemned him. And in doing this, they fulfilled the prophet's words that are read every Sabbath. What were those words that were read every Sabbath? Well, we don't know with certainty, but it was probably something like Isaiah 53, which talks about the suffering servant who would pay for the sins of people. That was something like that was probably read every, every Sabbath, at least in this synagogue. Uh, it may have been different in different synagogues. And so Paul is referencing that. He probably just heard it in their service already. Then in 28, he continues. They found no legal reason to execute him, but they asked Pilate to have him killed anyway. When they had done all that the prophecies said about him, they took him down from the cross and placed him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And over a period of many days, he appeared to those who had gone with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. They are now his witnesses to the people of Israel. And now we are here. To bring you this good news, the promise was made to our ancestors, and God has now fulfilled it for us, their descendants, by raising Jesus. This is what the second psalm says about Jesus. You are my son. Today I have become your father. For God had promised to raise him from the dead, not leaving him to rot in the grave. He said, I will give you the sacred blessings I promised to David. Another psalm explains it more fully. You will not allow your holy one to rot in the grave. This is not a reference to David. For after David had done the will of God in his own generation, he died and was buried with his ancestors and his body decayed. No, it was a reference to someone else, someone whom God raised and whose body did not decay. Now, the next two verses, in my opinion, are the most important verses in this chapter. Brothers, listen, we are here to proclaim that through this man, Jesus, there is forgiveness for your sins. Everyone who believes in him is made right in God's sight, something the law of Moses could never do. This is life-changing news for them. This is making their heads spin. Because if you're a Jewish person in this synagogue right now, you grew up being taught that the law of Moses is everything. The law of Moses is how you're made right with God. The law of Moses is central to our faith, to our family, to our heritage, our traditions. 
you learn and you keep the law of Moses. If you're a Gentile in the synagogue right now, you have more recently become aware of the value of the Judaic way of life and the God of Israel and the law of Moses. And so you're now learning these things and, and you're getting rid of those old habits and you're adopting these new things from the law of Moses. And here comes this outsider who is saying, the law of Moses could never make you right in God's sight. But Jesus can. You think it's following the law of Moses that saves you? You think it's doing all of these things that brings about salvation? But the law could never do that. The law is related to salvation, but the law doesn't actually give you salvation. It's kind of a crazy concept, especially for them. But even for us today, to think about it, how could anyone be saved in the Old Testament if what we believe about salvation is true? You have to believe that Jesus Christ died and was buried and that he rose again. It's only the sacrifice of Jesus that saves you. What about all those people before the sacrifice even happened? They never even heard the name of Jesus. They certainly had no idea that he died and was buried and rose again. So are there really two different plans of salvation? There's the plan of salvation that's based on works, and there's the plan of salvation that's based in faith in what Jesus did on the cross. That's the question that I want to touch on a little bit. Because I think a lot of people get confused when they think about salvation. And then, of course, as I mentioned earlier, there is this divide, it appears, between the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New. What I want to show you is what the Old Testament says about what God really wants and what really counts with him. And we're going to start in 1 Samuel chapter 15. Samuel's talking with King Saul here. And he says, what is more pleasing to the Lord? Your burnt offerings and sacrifices or your obedience to his voice? Listen, obedience is better than sacrifice. And submission is better than offering the fat of rams. David said in Psalm 51, you do not desire a sacrifice or I would offer one. You do not want a burnt offering. The sacrifice you desire is a broken spirit. You will not reject a broken and repentant heart, O oh God. See, both of these guys are getting at something deeper than the sacrifices, the rituals, the days of celebration. Isaiah says in his first chapter, what makes you think I want all your sacrifices, says the Lord. I'm sick of your burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fattened cattle. I get no pleasure from the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come to worship me, who asked you to parade through my courts with all your ceremony? Stop bringing me your meaningless gifts. The incense of your offerings disgusts me. As for your celebrations of the new moon and the Sabbath and your special days for fasting, they are all sinful and false. I want no more of your pious meetings. I hate your new moon celebrations and your annual festivals. They are a burden to me. I cannot stand them. When you lift up your hands in prayer, I will not look. Though you offer many prayers, I will not listen. For your hands are covered with the blood of innocent victims. Wash yourselves and be clean. Get your sins out of my sight. Give up your evil ways. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Help the oppressed. Defend the cause of orphans. Fight for the rights of widows. What is God saying about how to be right with him? Is it all about following the sacrifices and the religious days and the nuances of the law of Moses? No. What does God want? A broken spirit. A broken and repentant heart. A heart that believes in him. A heart that recognizes humbly that we can't be good enough on our own and that we need God, that we need him in our life, that we need to confess our sins, that we need his forgiveness in our lives. What's the mechanism of that forgiveness? They, don't, they didn't know yet. 
but still they could have that faith that God could do it. The point of the sacrifices was not to save them from their sins. It was to remind them that they needed a savior. God never said, if you do all these things, it will be good enough for you to be made right with me. God said, I want a broken heart. I want a repentant heart. And as a result of that faith and humility, here are the things that you can do. The sacrifices are a demonstration of our faith. And the sacrifices are a guide to the need for faith and repentance and brokenness. But the sacrifices and the, and the festivals and the other aspects of the law of Moses were not actually meant to save them. And if you take faith out of that, equation, out of that equation, if it's just about the things that you do, what does God say? It's meaningless. It's worthless. It detests. I detest it. It disgusts me. I hate all your extra traditions that you've added around this. I hate the rituals that you've added on top of rituals that you've added on top of things that I did command you to do, but you're doing them with the wrong motives. You think that's what I want? You think you can go live however you want and think whatever you want in your heart and have whatever attitude you want toward me throughout the week, but then as long as you make sure you're here to do that thing that's religious, then that's going to be okay? He says, that's worthless. That's not what I want at all. And by the way, this is the God of the Old Testament talking. This is not the new. This is just the Old Testament. Even in the Old Testament, salvation was actually through faith. And it says this, Genesis 15, 6 says, And Abram believed the Lord, and the Lord counted him as righteous because of all the sacrifices he did. No, because of his faith. It was actually his faith that made him counted as righteous. Paul quotes this in Romans 4. He says, Abraham was humanly speaking the founder of our Jewish nation. What did he discover about being made right with God? If his good deeds had made him acceptable to God, he would have had something to boast about. But that was not God's way. For the scriptures tell us Abraham, Abraham believed God and God counted him as righteous because of his faith. The author of Hebrews talks about this and adds a lot more context for us. We don't know who wrote Hebrews. It could have been Paul, it could have been Barnabas. But in Hebrews 10, we read this. The old system under the law of Moses was only a shadow, a dim preview of the good things to come, not the good things themselves. The sacrifices under that system were repeated again and again, year after year, but they were never able to provide perfect cleansing for those who came to worship. If they could have provided perfect cleansing, the sacrifices would have stopped for the worshipers would have been purified once for all time and their feelings of guilt would have disappeared. But instead, those sacrifices actually remained, reminded them rather of their sins year after year, for it is not possible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. That is why when Christ came into the world, he said to God, you do not want animal sacrifices or sin offerings, but you have given me a body to offer. Under the old covenant, the priest stands and ministers before the altar day after day, offering the same sacrifices again and again, which can never take away sins. But our high priest offered himself to God as a single sacrifice for sins, good for all time. Then he sat down in the place of honor at God's right hand. That's in Hebrews chapter 10. In the next chapter, he gives us a list of a whole bunch of Old Testament saints. These are believers in God who had faith, and it was their faith that meant they were counted as righteous for God, that they, they were participants in eternal life. And he gives this list of Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, Rahab, Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and, and a bunch of other prophets. And then he says, all these people died still believing what God had promised them. They did not receive what was promised, but they saw it all from a distance and welcomed it. 
They agreed that they were foreigners and nomads here on earth. All these people earned a good reputation because of their faith, yet none of them received all that God had promised. For God had something better in mind for us so that they would not reach perfection without us. What he's saying is God offered them salvation through faith, but God did not fulfill the whole plan and path because he wanted to stretch this out so more people, that includes you and me, could be a part of his family and his kingdom. And the New Testament says that too, that God is not being slow about his promise, but he's being patient for our sake so that more people will come to repentance and be a part of his family, be a part of his kingdom. That's what God was doing. What we see here is that the salvation plans of the Old Testament and the New are linked. God did not change how salvation worked pre-Jesus and post-Jesus. The followers in the Old Testament believed that God was able to forgive their sins somehow, some way. Did they know exactly how he was going to do that? No. It was a mystery to them. That mystery has now been revealed to us, but they looked forward to a time when God would make that possible. And we now look back at the incident that actually occurred and say, thank you for Jesus. And they looked forward and said, God, I believe you'll make a way, even if I don't know the details. But it's still faith in God that's at the root of it all. God's plan of salvation has never been about earning it. It's never been about the works or the sacrifices or the rituals or the festivals. The sacrifices were a guide to repentance. The sacrifices were a reminder of the need for repentance. They were a reminder for humility and the importance of us coming to God and saying, I don't have it on my own. I need you in my life. That was the whole point of the sacrifices. Now, it's worth noting that even though the commands about the sacrifices have ended, commands about sacrifice have not ended. And what I mean by that is we have new commands about our own need to sacrifice. It just looks different and less legalistic. And I don't mean legalistic in a bad way. It's not codified into law the same way it was for the covenant with the children of Israel. But we still need to sacrifice. We still are given spiritual gifts by God that he says, I want you to use these in the body of Christ to serve one another. That means you're sacrificing your time and your energy to serve in the family of God. That's a sacrifice. There's other stuff you could be doing with that time and with that energy. And yet you're saying no to something else so you can say yes to something for God. And that is a sacrifice. He still expects us to give of our resources. That's a sacrifice. I could do more with that money if I were able to just go spend it, but instead I'm going to take a good chunk of my income and I'm instead going to give it to God's work in some way. That's a sacrifice. And we are still expected to sacrifice of our, our time, our energy, and our resources for God. It's just not baked into a strict legal system like it was in the old covenant. Now back in Acts 13, Paul is going to challenge his audience now. He says this, be careful in verse 40. Be careful. Don't let the prophet's words apply to you. For they said, look, you mockers, be amazed and die. For I am doing something in your own day, something you wouldn't believe, even if someone told you about it. That comes from one of my favorite passages in scripture. It's Habakkuk 1. Habakkuk 1.5 is where God says this. He says this to Habakkuk. And the, the whole point of this is, doesn't have to do with this situation today in Acts 13, but Paul is borrowing from this to apply the same principle and say, look, God was doing a new thing in Habakkuk's day, something that was so radically different, it was hard to believe. And yet it was God at work. And Paul is saying, God is doing a new thing in this day, something that's so radically different from what you're used to. It's hard to believe. 
but God is at work. And if you look in the scriptures, you will see, yeah, this all checks out. This is all true. This is all right. You look at the Old Testament scriptures and you will see this is the fulfillment of everything that was talked about. And I need to believe in this and I need to follow this. That's Paul's message to them. That's why he borrows these words from the prophet. Uh, Paul told the Gentiles in Colossians something that's really interesting here. In Colossians 1.25, he said, God has given me the responsibility of serving his church by proclaiming his entire message to you. This message was kept secret for centuries and generations past, but now it has been revealed to God's people. For God wanted them to know that the riches and glory of Christ are for you Gentiles too. And this is the secret. Christ lives in you. This gives you assurance of sharing his glory. See, all of this was a mystery. All of this was a secret to people in the past. They still needed to have faith in God, but they didn't know how it was gonna work out. And why did God do that? Because his plan all along was to welcome Gentiles with open arms. And that's probably most of us would be in the category of Gentiles. So praise God for that, right? So that was God's plan so that we could be included in that family. The plan hasn't changed. It's just clearer now. We look back now and understand what God did. They had to look forward and believe that he would. But the actual plan of salvation hasn't changed. Well, Paul taught about this and his teaching was so different for them and so intriguing that they wanted to hear more. Verse 42 says, as Paul and Barnabas left the synagogue that day, the people begged them to speak about these things again the next week. Many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas and the two men urged them to continue to rely on the grace of God. The following week, almost the entire city turned out to hear them preach the word of the Lord. And what that means is we now have some extra groups that have joined us. So we had the Jews who follow God, but hadn't learned about Jesus until this point. The Gentiles who follow God, but hadn't learned about Jesus at this point. Jews who follow Jesus, of course. Then there's Jews who don't follow God, who are showing up at this thing. It's the whole city that turns out, and we'll see them in a minute. And Gentiles who don't follow God, because this is a Gentile city. It's mostly Gentiles. They've shown up too, because almost the whole city is there. And in verse 45, when some of the Jews saw the crowds, they were jealous, so they slandered Paul and argued against whatever he said. Just whatever it is he's saying, I'm gonna say the opposite because I don't like it. Why? Because they're jealous. Why? Because these are Jewish leaders. There are a lot of Jews that are hearing this and going, this makes sense to me, but there are Jewish leaders who are jealous because they see these crowds showing up for Paul and Barnabas and are thinking, I want that. I want that kind of following because they're not in it for the right reasons. And so these are Jewish leaders here. And then Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly and declared, it was necessary that we first preach the word of God to you Jews. But since you have rejected it and judged yourselves unworthy of eternal life, we will offer it to the Gentiles. It's important for us to note here that Paul is not talking to all the Jews. He's talking about the Jewish leaders Many Jews believed in Jesus. And many of the Jews were right along with Paul and Barnabas here at this point, and they're following them. But it's the Jewish leadership, the establishment of Jewish leaders that again and again has rejected God's message for them. And that's what Paul is talking about here. They've rejected it and judged themselves unworthy of eternal life. They have determined on their own, I am not going to accept this message from God because I've got a good thing going here. And I want to protect it. And I want to hold on to those traditions and my position of prominence and power and this new thing, it scares me and it's different, it's changed, I don't like it. And also they probably didn't have a real faith with God. Didn't have a real faith in God. They had a faith in their system, their tradition and their position, their authority. And so they didn't like this. That's who Paul is talking about here. And this was true throughout history. Back in Ezekiel, 
God talks about the people of Israel. He says, repent and turn from your sins. Don't let them destroy you. Put all your rebellion behind you and find yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. See, that's what he really wanted, right? A new heart and a new spirit. For why should you die, O people of Israel? I don't want you to die, says the sovereign Lord. Turn back and live. In Matthew 23, Jesus is talking. He said, how often I've wanted to gather your children together as a hen protects her chicks beneath her wings, but you wouldn't let me. You've rejected me again. In Romans 10, 21, Paul gives a quote from Isaiah. He says, all day long, I opened my arms to them, but they were disobedient and rebellious. And so Paul is talking to these Jewish leaders in this smaller Antioch and saying, you've rejected the word of God. You've rejected the new thing that God is doing. You are guilty of the same warning that Habakkuk was given long time ago because God's doing this new thing and you have rejected it. And because of that, you've judged yourselves unworthy of eternal life. And that's on you. And now our focus is on the Gentiles. That's, that's a big shift for Paul and his ministry. And then he says this in verse 47. For the Lord gave us this command when he said, I have made you a light to the Gentiles to bring salvation to the farthest corners of the earth. Paul's been thinking about this a lot lately. He knows the prophecy from Isaiah 49, where God says that you're gonna, there's gonna be a light to the Gentiles and bring salvation to all the earth. And Paul is starting to realize, I think I'm the fulfillment of that prophecy, or at least a big part of it. And that's why he's now going by Paul and telling them, we're gonna turn to the Gentiles. Now, verse 48, when the Gentiles heard this, they were very glad and they thanked the Lord for his message and all who were chosen for eternal life became believers. And the most important part of this verse to recognize is that the Gentiles heard this and had a completely different reaction than the Jewish leaders. They heard this and they were glad because they were, oh, wow, this is awesome. This, is, this Jewish Messiah is completely open to us and they understood it and they resonated with it and they became believers that day. But there's a theological implication in the text too that we should talk about. I don't wanna just gloss over it. And that is that phrase, all who were chosen for eternal life became believers. And so the question that I wanna talk about briefly here is, does this verse say that God chose which Gentiles would be saved and then either directly or by exclusion, which Gentiles would not be saved? I wanna be clear. I am not going to try to answer for you this morning the question of election and predestination. I am not going to try to do that in the two minutes and eight seconds I have left. I may go a little over. But I want to address the question of, does this verse say that God chose who would be saved that day? Because I think it can be easy to misunderstand, especially when we're reading an English translation of it, what's really being said here. But there is, there is a good broader question there. That's just probably something for a different time or maybe a podcast coming up or something like that. But the word here for chosen does not tell us who is doing the choosing or when or how or any of that. That's actually not in the text at all. In fact, some versions will add those words in there. That's not in the text. The word for chosen here, which comes from a, a root word, tasso, just means a choice was made. It doesn't tell you who did it. And so this word can actually be interpreted a couple different ways. And it is most often interpreted in a way that would make us reading it think, oh, they were chosen by someone else, but that's not actually what the text says. It oftentimes it's translated all who were chosen for eternal life, which makes us assume, oh, by someone else, became believers. That's not actually what the text says. Because the word could be translated all who chose eternal life became believers. It's just not clear in the text which version is meant there. In fact, we actually see exactly this in 1 Corinthians 16, 15 which says, you know that Stephanus and his household were the first of the harvest of believers in Greece, and they are spending their lives in service to God's people. Spending their lives is the same root word there. And in this case, it seems from the translation 
that these people are making the choice to spend their lives there, not that someone else forced them to do it. And so you see, the way we translate these Greek words into English sometimes makes a difference in how we interpret the theology around them. And the same thing could be true for Acts 13, 48, that really this had more to do with something that they were choosing than something they weren't. It's just not clear. Uh, even if it does mean something else was, was chosen outside of them, it doesn't necessarily mean that, well, God is choosing these Gentiles to be saved and these Gentiles not to be saved, either directly or by exclusion, because it can mean other things too. So for instance, some scholars will say that this word can also mean predisposed or already part of a group. And, and so there are some different ways of interpreting this. And, and the fact that Paul has already multiple times mentioned these are God-fearing Gentiles. And what we just talked about with regard to Old Testament salvation, what does that mean? Well, they, there was still a path to salvation without knowing who Jesus was. As an Old Testament believer, you could have faith in God, faith that he would provide a way for salvation, not necessarily believing that the works you were doing was what God really wanted, but that it was more about your heart condition and your orientation toward God. And those people could still be saved on the basis of the, the sacrifice of Jesus, even not knowing the exact details of how God would work out that sacrifice. But God still accepted those people, and we know that's true from Isaiah, from Hebrews, from Romans, from other places. And so it's possible that what this passage is referring to is the fact that these people were already appointed to the group of eternal life by virtue of being God-fearing, truly faithful Gentiles. They just hadn't heard the message of Jesus yet. And so if they had never heard the message of Jesus, they would still have been, been part of that eternal life group because as part of the Old Testament path to salvation, they had faith in God. They just didn't know the good news about Jesus yet. And so for that group of people... They readily accepted the message about Jesus and immediately joined in. And of course, now they get the Holy Spirit and are sealed with the Holy Spirit. And that's what would have changed for them. So basically, there are three main ways we can interpret Acts 13, 48. One way is to say some Gentiles chose eternal life. And by the way, this is in contrast to verse 46, which says the Jewish leaders rejected it. Notice that in verse 46, there is a personal choice that is made by the Jewish leaders to say, we reject this and we judge ourselves unworthy of eternal life. No one did that for them. And then the contrast to that is two verses later. Now these Gentiles are choosing eternal life. So that's one interpretation of it. The second interpretation would be that the Gentiles who feared God had already been in that group of eternal life. They were appointed to eternal life. And maybe it was referring to God doing the appointing, but it was on the basis of their already being part of that God-fearing group of Gentiles. And the third possibility is that some Gentiles are chosen by God for salvation and some are not. And those who are chosen were the ones that believed. All three of those are plausible interpretations of this verse. Now, I think that the most likely interpretation is probably one or two. I don't think the evidence is strong for the third one. And actually, some theologians who would consider themselves Calvinists, which, which means that they believe that God determines who will be saved in different nuances, even admit this verse isn't talking about that. So I think the answer to our question today, at least for me, is no, I don't think this verse is saying that God is choosing here which Gentiles will be. I don't think that's what this verse is saying. I don't 100% know what it's saying, but I don't think we can say with confidence that it's saying that. But let's put this in the context of a, of a broader picture of how we get along as believers in the body of Christ. If you've been here very long, you've heard about the buckets of belief in a series we've done a couple of times called the Undivided Series. And this is an issue of theology that we put in the conviction bucket. 
What that means is we have people here who believe that God uh, somehow determines who will be saved and maybe determines who won't be saved or maybe that's just an exclusion thing. There are lots of nuances to that. We have other people who believe, no, there is an element of free libertarian choice in that. And, and underneath the surface of that is the question of does God regenerate the person so they can have faith or does the person have faith and then God regenerates them? That's really the question behind the scenes that's underneath all of this. And the answer to that is we'll find out in heaven. Because these, at the end of the day, are theories about how God works out salvation behind the scenes. Now, let me try to tie a bow on all this. In the Old Testament, they knew God was going to provide a sacrifice. They knew God was going to have a Messiah. They knew there was a Savior of some kind that was coming. And they had to have faith, even though the details of that were completely mysterious to them. Right? In the New Testament, we look back and we see that sacrifice provided. But there are still details that are mysterious to us. And we try to come up with theories about how it all works. And there's nothing wrong with that. But if that becomes our focus, that actually becomes an idol for us. And we're not fixed on the thing that really matters, which is God has provided a sacrifice for our sins. And you believe in that sacrifice and you become a part of his family. And you trust in what God did for you and not what you can do for God. And he will give you eternal life with him. That's what really matters at the end of the day. And we cannot lose sight of that. Let's talk about how Paul's time in Antioch ends here. Verse 49. So the Lord's message spread throughout that region. Then the Jews stirred up the influential religious women and the leaders of the city, and they incited a mob against Paul and Barnabas and ran them out of town. So they shook the dust from their feet as a sign of rejection, something Jesus had told the disciples to do one time, and went to the town of Iconium. And the believers were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Now it's interesting that up until this time in the chapter, we've been introduced to all sorts of different groups of people. Remember, there were the, the Jews that were God-fearing but hadn't heard of Jesus. There were the Gentiles that were God-fearing but hadn't heard of Jesus. The Jews like Paul and Barnabas who believed in Jesus. Then there were the Jews who didn't follow God. Um, and I think that the religious leaders and these influential uh, Jewish women were a part of that. They, they didn't really follow God, but they pretended to. There were, of course, Gentiles there who didn't follow God. Um, and then there's this mob of people that's hostile to the message of Jesus. But in this last verse, there's one group that's mentioned, just one group. And it says, and the believers were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. And actually that word for believers there means learners or students or disciples. And so at the end of the day, there are really just two kinds of people, whether it's Old Testament or New Testament whether it's black or white, whether it's young or old, whether it's Jew or Gentile, whatever differences you can think of that we have, at the end of the day, there really are two kinds of people. People who are disciples or students or learners who have faith in God, faith in his plan of salvation, which we know to be through Jesus Christ, and people who don't. People who are trying to make their way through life on their own. People who maybe think maybe there isn't a God, and so this is all there is. Or people who think, that as long as I do enough good in my life, hopefully that outweighs the bad. But as we have seen today over and over again, that's not God's plan and that's never been God's plan. God's plan is for people to recognize that they can't do it on their own, whether they're Old or New Testament, to recognize that they need God in their lives and to come to him with a broken spirit, with humility to say, I can't do it, God. I need you to help me. I give it all to you. I surrender my whole life to you. And then watch what God does in your life as he brings about good things and he brings about you doing good things in your life. But it's not that you're doing those good things to earn your place with God. You're doing those things because you believed in him and he's now given you a place with him. Important theological truths for us to remember. 
And I hope that there'll be things that you think about this week as you go throughout your life and live out what I hope is a saving faith in Jesus Christ, thankful for the message that we have today, but applying it to your life as a redeemed child of God who lives differently because of that faith that you have. Let's bow our heads in prayer right now, if you would. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and what it teaches us, God. Thank you for what we've talked about today. It's, it's interesting to me to see how you interacted with people in the Old Testament. And I think sometimes we have misjudged you and we've misunderstood you and we've read parts of the Old Testament without putting it in balance with others to recognize what you were really doing, what you really wanted. It's not that you were a God of judgment or condemnation before and suddenly added love, grace, and mercy. That's a misrepresentation of who you are. And so God, we worship you today as someone who has always been a God of love, a God of forgiveness, a God who says, if you just believe in me, if you just recognize that you can't do it on your own, if you just turn to me and commit your life to me, then I'll make you part of my family and give you a, a completely new life and new desires and new dreams and new goals. And Lord, that's not to say that we don't sometimes struggle. <laughs> we do, but our life is so much better because you are in it. Jesus, I pray that you would help us to remember these words this week. I pray that it would give us confidence, not only in who you are, but in our relationship with you. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.